And it's not like stop motion better than anything. It's not. But the process, the people that I work with, that world, that's the world I love. This is the SparkCast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Henry Selleck's artistic talents were noted at an early age, but he shied away from the attention, turning instead to another creative outlet, music. While in college studying math and science, he rediscovered his love for art and eventually found himself at CalArts. Unable to keep up with the ferocious pace at Hanna-Barbera, Henry went knocking on Disney's door, a relationship that eventually led him to directing the groundbreaking The Nightmare Before Christmas. And the rest, as they say is history. We spoke with Henry about his inspiration and early passion for art, his penchant for the macabre, the evolution of stop motion, and his latest film, Wendell and Wild. Here is our conversation with Henry Selleck. I understand that art was always a thing that you liked. When did you kind of grow this passion for drawing? I was uh, born with a passion for drawing. I just, you know, like a lot of people in animation, one of those kids who do constantly. I actually got to a point where I, I was getting like too much attention for it. And so for a few years, I sort of stopped. You know, the class artist, but then I had my artwork in a show with adults and people said, no, that kid couldn't do that. But that's what I did as a kid, you know, just um, pencil and paper, uh, ink. I liked using pastel a lot. Just that was my thing. So when did that, not that it shifted, but when did animation come into the picture for you? It was certainly something I'd been heavily influenced by and loved. I made flip books like any kid, but I didn't really consider it as a career till I was already after high school and going to college and um, pursuing various, you know, illustration major at Syracuse University and sculpture, photography, painting, etchings. And then I finally saw this uh, sort of experimental animated film on the public television station. And it just was like a bolt of lightning, like everything I loved came together in one medium. And they had a course at Syracuse, and I, I, I took it with Bruce McCurdy, a lovely uh, professor. And then, then it came down to, um, wow, you can bring things to life, but it takes so long. You know, I had to sort of wrestle with that idea, like the price to pay. But I kind of made peace with that, and I moved forward with animation. I ended up uh, going to Cal Arts because at the time that was the best school in the States. Heavily, heavily influenced when, when um, I took Bruce McCurdy's class, I saw amazing films from the Canadian Film Board. That's uh, one of the biggest inspirations. Caroline Leaf, all her movies forever and ever. She's one of the film geniuses of all time. Ryan Larkin, who had done a couple of films and then disappeared. Um, oh, there's Sandcast, Co Hodeman. There's, there's a whole bunch of amazing films, and I fooled myself into thinking, oh, I could, I could make short films. These people seem to be making a living. I had no idea that it would, no, in the States, that was an impossibility, but I didn't know that yet. <laughs> the reality of it hadn't hit you yet. No, I was just wide-eyed and yeah. <laughs> Am I mistaken in reading that you also took some science classes? Like, was that kind of like the backup plan? I, well, it, wasn't, it was actually um, when I wasn't, wasn't sure about the arts, I had 
you know, I couldn't tell you at what age it was, but there was a certain point I got, I got, I got a little too much attention. For, oh, yeah, that's that kid that can draw things and this, this, and this. And I kind of moved away from that into music more, like being in bands, a jazz band and a rock band, and I played, you know, several instruments. Uh, for a while, that took the took the place. And so my my first year of college, I went to the the state school in New Jersey, which is where I was raised. Uh, Rutgers, and I just took a variety of classes, but I always had liked biology and physics. Uh, you know, why? Why? Because of good teachers. Sometimes, you know, you like a subject because the teacher's so good. We had the physics teacher in high school. Mr. Mitchell was the coolest guy in the world with, you know, a fast Mustang and sideburns and these cool Buddy Holly glasses. And so, yeah, I love physics. <laughs> but it was it was it was there the first year that I got the art bug again. It just came back full force. And then because there was a good arts program at, at Syracuse University, I transferred there. I know that your career kind of started at Disney. Was that sort of when you started thinking about animating as this thing that you could do possibly for a living? Was Disney kind of the goal? No, no, it was never my goal. I mean, I know there's a kid I I drew um, all sorts of things, including cartoon characters, you know, Bugs Bunny. I drew Mickey Mouse when I'm five years old and things like that. But I seriously, I thought I was going to make artistic short films and that someone would pay for them. But I, and it was, it was kind of like as I was coming to the realization, as I was finishing up some of my student work at, at CalArts, they're like, wow, you know, maybe one film. There was a film called Frank Film. Everybody watched that. It's only fest, only festivals, and um, I kind of needed a job for the summer, and I, um, you know, I wasn't fast enough an in betweener in Hanna Barbera, and so I knocked over Disney, and they because I was going to Cal Arts in the program, they took me in, and I studied that first sun, summer under Eric Larson, one of the nine old men who was like so generous and sweet, and he taught me, um, you know, that your type of humor is New Yorker cartoons. And it was, because I grew up on them. I loved them, and I loved them. And, and I was doing tests that would have worked as a New Yorker cartoon. He said, what we do here is different. You know, maybe you could learn it. And, and he kind of taught me. So Disney became another school. But everybody else there could, like, draw those Disney characters from their mind. It was, it was, it was overwhelming. I mean, it, it was a very challenging time. But I, I learned a huge amount there. Did you ever imagine that you would be making films there at some point, even though your style and your sensibility was certainly not the Disney brand? I didn't really have the vision. There, there, there were like, uh, it's hard to believe, his name was Donald Duckworth. <laughs> really? He was sort of like the, the head of animation, the production side, but because of a student film I made, Phases, he said, so you want to be a director one day here, don't you? And I... I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't. No, I, I didn't imagine it. I couldn't imagine it. When did stop motion become a thing that interested you? Because that's really what, you know, when people think of Henry Selleck, that's the first thing that comes to mind, stop motion. You know, I, I dabbled in other types of animation, uh, you know, did some cutout work, which is basically poor man's stop motion. <laughs> um, I learned to be hand, I could hand draw. And, you know, I became... <clears throat> a full animator dizzy, but from the cutouts, I went to stop motion. While I was di dizzy, I got a grant. There's not many in the U.S., but from the National Endowment for the Arts, 
I got a grant because I'd made a proposal of a film, and Disney was so cool. They said, well, you go work on your film. You work here part-time and go do your film. I mean, it really was, was great. And in the film, part of the film is these large life-size figures sitting by a pool and having a conversation, and um, it's stop-motion animation. And I just sort of, like, moved more and more that way. And, and also, there, there was um, films I saw at CalArts because I was in a sort of a Disney training program, but it's also in the Jules Angle experimental animation program at the same time. I think I'm the only person they ever allowed to do that. But I, I saw things uh, like Jan Schwenkmeyer's short films. I mean, that's that was really impactful. He had a little short, it was called Jabberwocky. It didn't have that much to do with Alice in Wonderland, although later his feature did. That was, that was a big influence. There was just something about stop motion that drew me there, and I kind of, um, I just felt like the endless miracles of touching things and bringing them to life. I mean, just that's, that's my favorite way to go. And I, I love all, sight, all sorts of animation. And it's not like stop motion better than anything. It's not. But the process, the people that I work with, that world, that's the world I love. It seems to me that stop motion is even more time consuming than, you know, the pencil and paper. Yeah, it depends. I mean, if, you know, if it's a pencil and paper student film where maybe there's some color or something composited later, certainly it's, it's going to take more time than that. But it doesn't necessarily take more time than a big budget CG film. You know, Nightmare Before Christmas probably took a total of three and a half years. James the Giant Peach, the same. Coraline, maybe a little longer. This one took the longest just because of sort of early development period and then the pandemic shutting us down because we have to be there in person wrestling with puppets. I wanted to ask a little bit about the, some of the themes and the visual style of your films because one of the things that appealed to me when I was a teenager, when I first fell in love with The Nightmare Before Christmas was how kind of quirky and dark it is. And that's kind of a theme that I find in all of your films. They're approachable and kids can watch them, but there's just this like oddity to them, this little tinge of darkness. Where does that come from? Well, I, I think it's completely normal. Are you saying I'm abnormal? No, I mean, we, we love it, so clearly not. <laughs> it's just the thing that, that I've always been drawn to. Um, I'm you know giving a presentation later that actually show, shows early influences, the sort of things that excited me as a kid. Uh, my mother, who's, um, she also like sort of like dark, scary stuff, so she would show me things. I, I grew up in New Jersey. My mother was from Alabama, the Deep South, and we would, me and my, my siblings would go there every summer, and her people were very poor, but they had the world's best storytellers, and it was always ghost stories, murder stories, supernatural things, and the best storyteller was a woman named Aunt Lib, and uh, she'd always give us a little present, like Mexican jumping beans, the real ones. You know, little seeds with a worm inside that would twitch. I just, I think it's just part of my, my genetics. And um, I just sort of like, I think, I think that, and I think it's important actually for kids to be scared in the same way, you know, the great, the, the first storytellers might have been the people warning you about the bears that were going to eat you if you leave the cave. And that's not enough. You've got to make up a story that raises the hairs on a kid's neck. I don't like 
you know, outright horror films. I mean, there's some I, I've I've liked over the years, like uh, Kubrick's The Shining. But um, I'm yeah, that I'm drawn to the dark, but mixed with fun and inventiveness and su- surprises. I always want to bring something to the screen that most people have never thought of or seen before. Is there ever a struggle to kind of find the balance between the darkness and that sort of that the lightness? Um, yeah, it's, it, it's always a struggle. It's always um, how much is too much. What's the right balancing in, in ingredient? But that's kind of the that's my journey is uh, trying to tell a good story with memorable characters and you know scaring, not scarring. I've been seeing a lot of interviews that you've been doing about Wendell and Wild and sort of how the project came to be. And it's I know that it started quite a while back with your sons. Why adapt this now? You know, I'd done Coraline, a uh, well-received film. I'm very proud of it. And I actually had got another film up on its feet and going with Disney and Pixar. It's called The Shadow King. But it just wasn't meant to be. Turned out the creative differences were just too huge between me and John Lasseter. He said when I went to school with it at CalArts, along with many other talented animators. And I was down in the dumps. I wasn't sure I'd make another film. I was inspired to make another film because of the Key and Peele show on Comedy Central with Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. They were doing the best comedy sketch work ever in my life, better than SCTV, better than Saturday Night Live. Not always, but their best work was the best because they could play any character, any age, any ethnicity, any gender. They um, could approach stories you think you knew where it was going and always surprised. By the third season, I was inspired by them and their work to think, well, maybe I should make another film because I want to work with those folks. And what I had was a short story uh, from, from today, from 20 years ago, that I'd come up with inspired by my grown sons when they were little, and I sketched them as demons because they were doing some bad stuff. Not unholy, but just normal kid stuff. But it was like, I did that, and then I wrote a seven-page story, and you'd be surprised the characters are the characters in the film. Uh, But when you say, why now? It was just because of I was inspired by their work, and I went to them, and Jordan turned out to be an expert on stop-motion animation and knew all about it. And after, you know, reading the pages and my my pitch, he wanted to to do more. He said, I'm going to start this company, Monkey Paw Productions, these are the kinds of films that we want to make. And then he said, I, I want to be a collaborator with you. And, you know, with, with my new company that's all in the future, before he directed Get Out, he shared some of his ideas and they were brilliant. And it, I felt like, yeah, this would be an incredible partner to have. By working with him, I think that this film, it, it grew from this seed into a film that's right for our time. And I think Jordan's a huge part of that. Can we talk a little bit about the process of expanding that seven-page concept into, you know, the film that we have? The process of actually taking that original idea and then developing it into, like, a script for a feature film. Uh, it was a long process. You know, Jordan was still doing a final season of Key and Peele with his comedy partner and uh, was also um, developing, and he let me read the script for Get Out. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I realized he's not only funny and smart and knows about stop motion, but he's a really good writer. But he was also working on that, and finally that got greenlit. So it took a long time. Just So it was just sort of a long, drawn-out process of talking 
through over and over. I would always do the first writing. And at the time, I, um, one of the producers, Ellen Goldsmith Vane, she's also my manager and has been for decades. She has some connection with the publishing house and they said, why don't we do a book? Because it'll be easier to sell it as a movie. So I also started on a book and we brought another writer to work with me, Clay McLeod Chapman, and he was very well-intentioned. It's just not a good fit. It didn't work, his you know, sense of humor and so forth. And I couldn't do that and develop the feature. So that was put aside. I don't know. It's just, it's just the world grew one idea at a time. One thing would feed another, would feed another. For example, Kat Elliott, our protagonist, she's an Afropunker. And um, where did that come from? Well, it started simply with what's her look? You know, when she gets out of the juvie justice system, what does she, what does she want to be like or look like? Jordan and I both were a little familiar, and then we did a deep dive into this Afropunk movement. It's been around more than 10 years, and it's kind of young people honoring the black and brown punk bands of the 70s and 80s, um, which you know includes X-Ray Specs from England and poly, with Polystyrene as a lead singer, Pure Hell, Death, Bad Brains, Fishbone, which I directed a music video of in 1985. I had my bona fides. <laughs> but it started as a look, and then that's like, it became like, how does that connect the rest of the film? And then that led to like, well, she's got this old boom box, and she has her dad's mixtapes, and that's going to be this super strong emotional connection to her father, who's a fan of the first-gen block punk bands. So it just sort of like a look, and then that became a strong emotional connection. It sort of was like that. It'd be like, we need to solve one problem, but then how does it connect to the rest of the film? Were you writing the script as you were also developing some of these concepts like Cat's Look, Kim Peel's Wendell and Wilde's, you know, being in the film as well? Was that all sort of coming together at the same time? It was more like a, an elaborate treatment. I'd always write first, and uh, Jordan would write over that, but some of the initial ideas came first from, from Jordan. There's lots of ways to sell a movie, but our, our approach was what's the key image idea and then what's the elevator pitch, what's the one page. And we wanted each one of those to be perfect. And then what's the document we let people read. The script didn't really start in, in seriousness till we set up the film with Netflix, which was that was the only studio that promised to make the film. Because it's a weird film, and we wouldn't go to the major, the regular animation studios. And then, it, you know, it was a, just a long, drawn-out process. Um, we lost Jordan many times to go work on his films, and he was unavailable. But other people in his company, other creative partners were available. Ian Cooper, uh, Wayne um, Rosenthal, and um, he had a really good team of, of, of people. And then he would come out from having directed a film with totally fresh eyes. And he always could bring in this, you know, distant view. And we animators, we get lost in the details. And I'm, I'd like to pride myself on being able to step back and move in. But this became such a long, drawn-out process with the pandemic. It was almost like, how do we survive? How do we keep going? But then Jordan would show up with a world view and help make key adjustments, contribute specific ideas. You know how it is in animation. We, you want to write the best script you can, but the, that's not what you shoot. And so we then, you know, we rewrite it 
in drawings, and even there, that kept changing and changing and changing. Rewrites, rewrites, new dialogue. We, we better record Lyric Ross before her voice changes to be <laughs> unrecognizable. It was all like kind of wet and forming almost to the last week. That's amazing. The fact that it's come together and it's such a cohesive piece of filmmaking is kind of amazing. <laughs> the extra time helped us. It killed us in terms of energy loss and all that. But it actually helped because it, it does, it juggles a lot of elements, you know, vis visual, story, emotional. And I'd like to think we, we got it pretty well balanced. I think so. And I was going to ask about some of those elements because there is, like you mentioned, quite a lot going on in the film. You have, you know, Kat's struggle and the story that she's going through. But then you have all of these supporting characters that are each going through their own emotional story arc. And then you have things that are in there that are just, they feel like natural to the storytelling, but they're also very telling to the world that we're in now. A lot of the social issues that come up in the film are sort of big thought things. Like, you know, you have a transgendered character, you have a, a main character who is black, you have, my favorite of the characters is actually Siobhan, because yeah. she comes across as like, you think you know who this girl is, and then she is not at all the girl that you think she is. And there's so much of that, not just in this film, but in all of your storytelling, this idea that you don't really know what you think you know, which I love. And I, I always wonder, you know, as a storyteller and somebody that needs to balance all of these different th concepts and ideas, and on top of it, the fact that you're not even dealing with humans, you're now having to create these characters from scratch. That has like another layer of sophistication to the whole thing. And I'm just curious about, you know, the, the challenges of that. And if there was ever, like you say, you've made so many films and so many films that are classics. There's, there's, um... Let me give you a few examples that would, would help. Um, people really like Raoul. I, I, I love all our characters. Uh, I mean, it's a different kind of love for Ermgard the murderer, but I do, I'm highly entertained by her. Um, I had this idea that, um, you know, there's things from your real life. I had a father best. I made him father bests. He was much scarier than the guy in the movie, much scarier. A lot of my friends went to Red Bank Catholic, not Rust Bank Catholic. You, you bring things from your life, but then you reinvent them. I just had this idea that I want there to be one boy at this all-girls school. You know, I just thought it through and talked with Jordan, and at a certain point we just realized, well, the only thing that makes sense is that he's trans. And because it, we approach it that way, um, I think it feels really organic to the story that, yeah, that's why he's at the school and he knows these other girls are still getting used to it. He's um, kind of an outsider for the time being and Kat comes in a total outsider from the juvie justice system, so he's kind of drawn to her. But, you know, where did the impetus come for why one boy at all-girls school? Because it would be interesting. That's the only reason. And then you go deep. The juvie justice system... That came um, from my wife's third career, which was uh, for 10 years. She went back to school to become an advocate for special needs and at-risk youth. And through her, I found out how easy it was for, for kids to not be given a second chance, for kids who 
messed up, maybe even not that bad, to get pushed out of their lives in uh, public schools and end up in, in juvie justice, and that that's a really bad system. That kind of became a path, in my mind, for Kat. She'd lost her parents. What is that going to lead to? Anger, fear, and a giant burden of guilt. And then her behaviors get her in the juvie justice system. And it's only a miracle that she gets a second chance. The other end of that was villains. The villains were always going to be humans. It's the Claxons, Ermgard and Lane Claxon. You know, what in my mind was going to be a villainous sort of activity. You know, we're not going to capture cute puppies and skin them for coats. That had already been done. <laughs> so we, they, they were going to like, um, you know, destroy communities and then build like condos and things like that. But that wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. And uh, something I was aware of and then I did more research was the private prison system in the U.S., which, um, you know, yeah, let capitalism solve our problems. No, don't. Basically, you know, prisoners are housed, the people who own the prisons are paid per head, et cetera, et cetera. It's in the film. And um, it seemed like, yeah, that's something good for our, for our villains. But they're worse. They're also murderers. So, so it's, it's an inspiration from my wife's work and then sort of a logical, well, where does that, that go to thing? And then Jordan's main thing was he knew how much and what was too much. Of everything in the whole film, he's like, uh, you know, has this incredibly good taste. He knows the right tone. Um, you know, we have different races and ethnicities, but the movie's not about that. We have these villains, part of this system that goes back to the juvie justice, but the movie's not about that. So that's, it's just answering one question always ripples out, and if it's a good answer, then it'll ripple out in a good way and help pull the whole movie together. Do you think this film is the one that has the most personal uh, sort of touch to all of your films? It feels like it has a lot of like personal stories that are kind of infused throughout. It does have a lot of personal stories. It also has elements from films, um, like the film that was shut down was called The Shadow King, and I have a whole sequence where Kat has to go into the redemption chamber and a shadow version of herself and all of her, her, her guilt and all the rough things she's gone through, that shadow version uh, represents those moments. So I felt like, I'm going to get shadows in my movie. Yeah, it is the most personal. I brought in everything in my life, including the fact that I directed that band Fishbone, and, and we have a song of theirs, and we, they wear Fishbone shirts. I was just, you know, wide open. The, the, the town of Red Bank became Rust Bank, and Father Best became Father Best's, the scariest priest ever. But, um, you know, we lived with it a long time. The crew, you know, I've had ta very talented crews, but this is the best crew in terms of dedication with the talent, a sense of never giving up. You know, we came back to work with the, the masks, the social distancing, COVID testing, HVAC systems, so the, the air is pure. It did not make our task any easier. It's already very difficult. People just gave it their all. And that, in fact, that was my biggest fear was disappointing the crew with the movie because I fi figured they matter the most. And then I can care about Netflix and the rest of the world. Well, I think you've succeeded. 
one of the things that's really interesting about your films, they all have a very unique visual style, but they're all slightly different and the characters all look a little bit different. You've talked a little bit about, you know, the characters of Wendell and Wilde and how they came together. But even the rest of the characters and, you know, the look of Kat and the fact that she's got this boombox and the hair, the, the, the little thing with Wendell and Wilde and the hair serum thing is hilarious. I laughed so hard every time I think about it. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the developing the visual storytelling? Yeah, that, that hair cream, you know, it's called Handsome's Unholy Hair Resurrector Cream. I have a sample here. <laughs> I mean, some things um, come specifically from a problem to solve. So in this film, I always wanted the demons to look a little like Key and Peele. I wanted them to be caricatures. And when I brought that up, neither one of them was too excited. They thought that could go bad. And, and it could. A bad caricature or silly or stupid caricature could look that way. But um, I was aware of and then subsequently met with and then ultimately hired to design all our characters, this Argentinian named Pablo Lobato. And so I asked Pablo, we just happened to be traveling to L.A. from his home, and I happened to be in L.A. from my home in uh, north of San Francisco. I met, I talked about the project, and he he went to work for free. I offered to pay a little, he said, no, I love this. First, he w- had to watch the Keen Peel series because it wasn't uh, shown there. He watched uh, three seasons in like a week, <laughs> nonstop, and he, and he loved them. And so he started drawing, he did the characters, and then I, I shared those with, with uh, Keegan-Michael and, and Jordan, and they were, they were convinced. From that look, Pablo's work is very graphic, uh, very, uh, I'd say, heavily influenced by Pablo Picasso. It's very flat, and so adapting that to puppets and so forth was quite a challenge. But the, the look of that kind of rippled out. The graphic qualities and the strong shapes, especially in the underworld, because in the land of the living, we kind of went for a little more dimension. But the first production designer was Lou Romano, who's a brilliant artist, incredibly talented. And it was it was sort of a match made in heaven to have Lou Romano um, and Pablo with, with characters. So started to kind of grow these different worlds in a way that they complemented one another. Lou had to leave. He had, uh, you know, medical issues. And subsequently, a few other people were brought in. But the, um, the best ones, Kenny Leoncito, right out of Sheraton, with the most piercing laugh in the world. But he's so much more than his laugh. No, he's a brilliant artist who, who plugged in and tuned into what we were doing. And then I've got people I've worked with, some for many, many years, that can take a drawing of something and sculpt it or build it. And they're, kind, you know, I can just interact with them a few times and they dial it in. In this case, it started with caricature of those guys. And we ended up doing caricatures of a few other characters as well. But what does that look like? How do we uh, adopt that to, to a world and then the world that fits with that? You know, the other films all have their what starts first, chicken or egg uh, moment. But it's something I love. I mean, I love that exploratory time of just throwing things up, see what sticks. You know, on Coraline, early, early on, I discovered this incredible artist, Tadahiro Uesugi from Japan, and he became the the key illustrator. In a way, he was the production designer because we would build what he would draw. But getting the character designs for Coraline, that was much more difficult. It took a lot longer of hit and miss. I'd work with several artists. 
I don't know, building worlds, uh, it's kind of what I do, and it's the fun part because we literally build, <laughs> we build them. How big was, like, the sets for Wendell and Wild? We had a, a few large sets. There's a battle at the end, the bulldozer battle, uh, but it, it wasn't built full scale because then it would have uh, taken up a city block. It was built smaller, but it was still quite, quite large. It's one of those things I've just learned... Um, here and there, you got to spend the money so that the rest of the film can breathe and and feel big. So, you know, a large set there, when the heroes are escaping from Buffalo Belzer, they're going down this super steep road on a cliff face. That was all built huge. You know, Buffalo Belzer, the, the, the leader of the underworld, is a giant. And making things look big, there's always the same old tricks. Like in the original King Kong, they have they built a giant hand for uh, Faye Ray <laughs> to lay on when she's kidnapped from her apartment in New York. We built a couple of gigantic hands so that our puppets could interact directly with them and, and it'd be believable. But we don't have a, a Buffalo Belzer that's 300 feet tall. He's a little, little smaller than that. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> I'm curious about the process of you know, actually making the movie. How has that changed from, you know, when you made Nightmare to, you know, now with Wendell and Wilde? There's been a lot of changes. Most, um, a lot of positives that have happened. When we did Nightmare Before Christmas, there, there was a lot of the things we were doing that were no different from King Kong or Ray Harryhausen's work. We were, and, and there's certain things that we maintain to this day because there's no better way to do it and have it still be stop motion, meaning, you know, armatured characters that are reposed up to 24 times for a second of film to bring them to life. So that's the same. But back on, on Nightmare, you're shooting on film, and if there's a big accident in the middle of a shot, like a, a puppet's ankle breaks and he falls over, you can't keep going. Either you're going to do a cutaway or you get start start over. You'll, there's no way to line it up. And then towards uh, the end of Nightmare, someone had come up with a digital frame grabber. So we put video taps on our old Mitchell film cameras, these giant dinosaur cameras. But now we had a, f a film tap. And how many frames could we store? Two. So we had the ability, like every frame that you're you're, you're taking you'd click the button to store it. So if the puppet fell over or someone bumped the set and everything shifted, you could send the puppet to the hospital, get him back, and then click back and forth between this last frame and keep it going. That was, <laughs> I know it sounds so primitive. That was, a, that was a breakthrough then. But for flying characters or jumping, we had to hang them from spider wire, the stuff that's so thin the camera couldn't see it. Although you practically breathe on it, it's going to break. And so on and so forth. It's just, it's just, you know, we were shooting a lot in camera. The effects were in camera. No comping. There's none of that. Uh, and, then, and then fast forward to Coraline. While we're shooting digitally, the cameras are much smaller. It's easier to fit them through doorways, fly them around. We can capture the entire performance. Um, we can play it back. We know that it worked out. We don't have to, like, sweat wondering if the lab's going to ruin your shot. Um, we have the ability to digitally comp in elements, digitally do repairs. We don't have to hang things through wires. We can put them from a, a metal 
rig, uh, which could be something complicated that's programmed to like move up and down as the character's hopping along, and then you just paint it out digitally. And you know, there's been other improvements as well. There's a whole system dedicated to stop motion built by the Cleary brothers called Dragon Frame. Everybody uses it because they have student prices, but it's dedicated to capturing stop motion and they have their own programmed camera rigs to fly cameras around. That's a huge improvement. The, the bottom line for me though came with, from the time of Coraline till now, there really haven't been that many sudden uh, technical breakthroughs, but some stop motion films were starting to look too perfect, too much like CG. So we did make an effort to go a little backwards with um, showing seams and faces, shooting on twos and threes sometimes, and leaving in virtually every small mistake. It's kind of like, if people can't tell it's stop motion and they think it's CG, then why are we wasting our time? It was very much about showing. It's what like Ardman animation, a lot, a lot of films, they show the effort, the, the thumbprints, and maybe it's a little more work for the audience, but I think it makes it a more memorable experience to have to help make the magic happen instead of just sitting back and having it wash over you. Yeah, there, there's something tactile about it. It feels like it was made by someone. Those advancements in technology, particularly the cameras, I expect, must be really helpful in storytelling because it gives me, you much more flexibility. If you're able to move, like you were mentioning in Coraline, you're able to move through doorways and stuff. Does that give you a little bit more flexibility in your storytelling? In the past, if we had to move a giant camera through a window or a door, we would have to literally split that apart as soon as the lens was there, we'd have to split it apart for the camera to keep going. Yeah. So now it's much easier to fit, fit the camera into the, the space, um, make it more intimate. And we also are shooting at very high def. So in post, we have the ability to add camera moves, like slight drifts in, of slight repositioning, shifted to in or out of focus, stuff that would have added way too much time on the set. You know, the pandemic clearly was a very challenging part of making Wendell and Wild. But beyond the pandemic, I'm curious if there was anything else for you that you would say was the most challenging bit of making the film. Aside from the heat dome that made us the hottest place on Earth, <laughs> or the ice storm that uh, froze all the pipes in Portland, uh, no, we, we did have forest fire, you know, because of global warming there. And I get more forest fires in Oregon, and one was so close to our studio that we had to evacuate the puppets. It was just like, we figured, well, if we save the puppets, we could still make the movie. So laying them down in blankets in the back of a car and another blanket, it was you know, terrifying, but we, weren't, we were not going to be stopped. You didn't mean that so much. The challenges, it is, it is a dense, complicated movie trying to make things clear enough and not letting the things that shouldn't dominate, dominate. Uh, you know, the endless, endless balancing and reworking storyboards, rewriting, re-recording, was, there's just much more of it on this film than any other. The number of characters, we had a huge cast of characters just building those, those each, each of those puppets, the, the featured ones, that, you know, so the background characters are very simple, just a lot of a lot of extra work and time had a big impact on our schedule. It's like, well, we'd like to shoot these three scenes, but the puppets aren't ready. 
What can we shoot? I think just one of the biggest challenges of all was keeping people's spirits up. The uh, line producer, Julie Raglan, was kind of amazing at coming up with treats and gifts and endless, she's endlessly imaginative. Like everybody got a, a Red Bank Catholic patch as if it was a real school. You know, we have the, the little animals in our film. We have a Gabby, Gabby goat and we have the uh, octopus and we have Sparky the tardigrade. She had beautiful little pins made of all the animals and, and shared with people. So she was a, she was a huge help. You're a storyteller at heart. You you know you you make films that tell amazing stories. You've written books. When you start to develop sort of an idea, do you know more or less what it's going to end up as, or do you just sort of work through it? And at some point down the road, you like with this one, it'll turn out to be something. I kind of always try to start with an overall plan and pretend that I've figured it out. But most of it changes. And um, we, I never shoot the ending till the ending because everything before that may be shot out of order, but I know that that will impact the actual ending so much that there's no way to predict. There's people who have to draw really, really rough initially to, to find the thing, and there's others who can just see it already and go right there. I'm the really rough, wet paint, work in progress. You know, you could tell from coming to my office and seeing the huge mess. I don't throw things out because eventually, oh yeah, I, I'll be re-inspired or something like that. But I do, I, I start with the idea that we know what we're doing, but realize it will change and always for the better. Is that something that you learned from your years working in the industry or have you always been that kind of person? When I was a kid, me, my brother and sister all took piano lessons. It was the, the time, you know, not, not as many kids maybe today take music lessons. But we all took piano lessons. And I had this, my, my issue was I practiced pretty hard. I wanted to be able to play these songs. It was all classical music in that day. But if I'm playing back for Mrs. Edna Johnson, the teacher always had a huge pot of cabbage going. It was like really smelly. But, you know, and her husband is out there. He runs a florist. But I would be playing. I'd make a mistake. I'd get angry, and I'd start over. Edna Johnson, it took her probably three years, kind of taught me to play through the mistakes. Do the complete piece and think of it as a complete piece, not just as a series of notes. And that, that really has helped me my entire life. Try you know to not get stuck. I'm a you know I'm a writer too. I think writer's block is real, but it's better to just put something up there that could be total garbage, but it's a step. It's something after you're done, you realize well I want none of that in the film, but now I know. And I also strapped my laptop to a, a treadmill. No, I, I you know 15 years ago. I realized I go outside and I'm walking and I get my ideas and then it scrambles by the time I get back. But if I'm walking while I'm writing, it'll be there. And I've done it ever since. I, I've walked thousands of miles while writing, very slowly. And I can't draw while walking, but I can, I can write and that's just a little extra blood to the brain and uh, I fool myself. If you had one piece of advice for yourself when you were starting out, Knowing what you know now, what would you tell young Henry? 
Oh, man, that's tough. I'm a much nicer guy now. I was pretty hardcore as recently as Coraline about my vision and this. And uh, I think I've become a better director by being more open-minded, more collaborative. And uh, that would be the main thing I tell myself. Don't be such a fucking know-it-all. You know, be a little more open to what everyone has to contribute. That's that's the number because I was, yeah, I was a talented kid, but man, oh, I just was one of those kids, a, a kind of a, a, a know-it-all, and and um, that's the main thing. If I could go back in time, I would, I'd be pretty pretty tough on young Henry. I'd put him through some trials to loosen him up and get off his high horse. And that was our conversation with Henry Selleck. Henry's latest film, Wendell and Wild, is now streaming on Netflix. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about Spark CG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.